So today we're wrapping up our series. We've been going on the series call, It's Time to Grow Up. You know, just to summarize real quickly, we often focus on other aspects of growth in our lives, right? I got three little kids with me, and, um, you know, we focus on their mental growth, right? We, we send them to school. They have to learn math. They have to learn English. Uh, we focus on their physical growth. We make sure they eat. If they get sick, we take them to the doctors. But what does it really mean to grow spiritually? And that's what we kind of discussed in the last couple of weeks. In week one of our series, Pastor Ron addressed what spiritual maturity is not. It is not moral perfection because we're always learning and growing, right? It is also not um, inevitable or natural or accidental. In other words, spiritual maturity comes through works. You have to work on it. And finally, spiritual maturity is not optional. It's not just for the spiritual elite. It's not just for the pastor and the missionary. It's for everyone. In week two, Pastor Ron talked about spiritual maturity in terms of focus, right? That we need to be focused. That when we grow up in maturity, we start to forego some of the things that we used to be entertained by, the things that we used to find valuable. You know, as a 40-year-old, I'm not playing with the same toys I used to play when I was 10-year-old. Well, rather, I shouldn't be playing with toys, period. It would be kind of weird, right? It's the same thing with us spiritually. As we progress in our spiritual journey, things of the world should have less and less hold on our lives. And then last week, Pastor Ron addressed one of the keys to spiritual maturity. He's able to look forward to what God is doing and faithfully forget our past and use our past hurts, mistake, wounds to use that as avenue, as a testimony, as a weapon against the enemy to set other people free. You know, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, forgetting what is behind. The one thing I do is forgetting what is behind and press forward to what is ahead. And that's what spiritual maturity is. is we don't rest on the laurels of yesterday's victories and yesterday's lessons. We're always focused on what God is teaching us and, 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 and moving us and shaping us today. And today I want to do, I want to raise the bar a little bit more for spiritual maturity. To me, the pinnacle, truly the pinnacle of spiritual maturity is this one thing. is having a victorious mindset. Having a victorious mindset. In common language, what I mean to say is to think like a winner. I want to describe what that means. Now, the Lord has been showing me the last couple years, it's been a journey, how bit by bit I do not have a victorious mindset. I have a mindset of a victim. I have a victim's mindset. Um, you know, I don't know how it gotten to me ever since I was a little kid. No one taught me how to think like a winner. So I just adapted these ways of thinking like a victim. And they just kind of creep in and they become part of who I am. And God's been using things bit and bit to shake me, to, to, to shake me free of this fog. To show me how this victim mindset has really hindered my growth, my spiritual maturity process. And I want to just have a disclaimer here. By no means am I saying trauma and wounds and hurt is not real. All those things are real. Sin is real. Disappointment is real. Hurts are real. What I want to address is your mentality. Does that make sense? Your mentality. Your mentality is super powerful because your mentality shapes your reality. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Your mentality shapes your reality. You can have all the money in the world. You can have everyone praising you, everyone worshiping you, you're a mega star, and still have a mentality of a victim. Does that make sense? Chip on the shoulder, everyone's against you. Or you could have everyone, everything stripped away from you. You're illegally imprisoned. 
your health is stripped away from you, your loved ones stripped away from you, all your possessions stripped away from you, you can still have a victor's mentality. Does that make sense? Your, your mentality dictates your reality. So are you guys ready for a real challenging message today? I'm going to lift that bar, okay? Now before we start, I want to read Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. God has called us to become more than conquerors. He has called us to become not just victors, but great, great victors, great winners. Okay, so I'm going to start out by sharing my own journey, okay? I'm not preaching down to you. I'm preaching to myself. I'm struggling through this. I was struggling through it. I'm still struggling through this. This is the everyday battle. I'm speaking to myself, okay? So for a while now, God's been using something in my life to really expose my victim's mentality, okay? And this, this item he's using has tormented me. I've lost sleep over it. My wife and I have fallen over it. Um, so you might be wondering, who is this big baddie that I feel so victimized by that I feel like is ruining my, ruining my life and tormenting me. I want to show you a picture of these, these things that's victimizing me. <laughs> Look at these tyrants, okay. On the left is my, my oldest son, Nehemiah. He just turned six. He's the least of the tyrants, okay. And then my daughter, that beautiful little girl, Lathia, you know, she got her moments. But the main culprit is that kid in the middle, If you knew him, he's two years old, his name's Jara, and man, he is like the bully of all bullies to me. See, I don't know about your kids, but my kids are so demanding, okay? So when I come home from work, they just want to be all over me. Like, they have no sense of personal space. Hold on to me, hold on to my leg, want my attention, sit on my lap. I'm trying to read. They're like sitting on my face. They just, like, like. Like, you want to spend time with your dad? Like, what is that? Like, come on. They violate my carpet all the time. When they get sick, puke all over my carpet. No regard for the new carpet I have, okay, because they're sick. Or, you know, and I don't know about you guys, any OCDs around you, okay. I got some OCD, you know, compulsions. I got a little mental cold of cleanliness in my house, right. Total disregard, come to the house, trash everything, you know, just because they're acting like kids. Like, what is that? Is that an excuse these days? And then the worst, the worst thing, the most tormenting thing is they dare to have, they dare to have the gust to have nightmares at night and wake me up for my beauty rest. Okay. <laughs> That's just my kid. I don't know about yours, but my kids are tyrants. Now, I sound like I'm messing around, but the truth is, the truth is this. And those ridiculous what I just said. Obviously, I love them, and they're not tyrants. But the truth is, that's how I felt. That was how I felt. They were causing me genuine stress. I would come home from work. I open the door. I hear, "Hey, Daddy's home!" They all come running at me. My blood pressure just shots up. I'm like, "Oh my goodness, here's a real battle." You know, you go to work to rest, and you come home, and that's like really work starts. And I'll confess. I'll confess for there's a season. Okay, I come home from work, and between the time I come home from work and when I go to bed, I'm eyeing that clock the whole time. I'm like running out that clock. I'm like, how bad a dad would I be if I put them to bed at 5 o'clock? <laughs> Anyone going to call child protection service if I did that? You know, I'm like, 
who's going to tell? Who's going to tell here? Those are stuff coming to my mind. And, and they would, it doesn't just end when they go to bed. Because, you know, I feel like before they go to bed, they had a little meeting between the three of them. It's like, who's going to wake mom and dad up tonight? It's going to be you, you. You know what? We'll all do it. All three of us will do it. We'll take turn. You know, it got so bad. I mean, it's like every night. It got so bad to the point in which we have people spend the night at our house pretty often. And we'll warn them and say, hey, you know what? In the middle of the night, if you hear one or two or three or all of us screaming, just ignore it. It's common now. Just, just let it go. It's not a big deal. It might be the kids. It's probably me. doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, someone is screaming. So what happens is you start hearing me speak language like this. Watch out for my language. Okay, I will say stuff like, my kids are driving me crazy. I will say stuff like, my son makes me so mad. Or I can't do this without my parents. My parents and my wife's parents live in Virginia, a little far away. And I say stuff like, I can't do this anymore. I can't help this. It's not fair. I didn't know at the time, but using those type of language is the verbiage of a victim's mentality. Now, once again, I don't want to say there's no compassion or empathy for real circumstances and justice and sins and and horrors. I get all that. I don't want to invalidate any of this. But what I'm trying to say is having the right mentality is the best way to grow from that, to heal from that. Does that make sense? I'm not invalidating those pains. I want to elevate your mindset so you can be healed and grow from those pains. So I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, what a loser. He's only got three kids and he's complaining about his three kids. To which I will respond, I 100% agree with you. I felt like a loser and I acted like a loser. But what I want to ask you to do is do this little exercise and replace my verbiage with something in your own life that you speak like that about. For example, you might say something like, my wife is driving me crazy or my husband is driving me crazy. But what about this? My, My boss, my boss makes me so mad. My boss makes me so angry. Or I can't stand this job anymore. Well, how about this? If my pastor will only do this, then I can, so and so forth. You know, one day, so going back to my son, Jire in the middle, the two-year-old. Looks so cute, right? He, he's an interesting kid. He's the most dramatic of all my kids. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just different from the rest of us because we're not really dramatic. And he does one of these things in which he has different variation. But this was his first First try at this. He'll like be running around with a toy, and he'll trip and he'll fall. But not like a real trip, like a fake trip that you fall like two inches literally. He'll fall on carpet, so he's not hurt. And his toy will fall like literally two centimeters away from his hands. To which he has two options at this point. He could get his butt up and pick up the toy, or he'll simply extend his finger and grab the toy. But he chooses option C instead. He will not move an inch. And he'll just proceed to say, help, 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 help. I mean, you hear your son crying for help in the other room. You're right now see what's going on, right? And I looked at him, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, this is a joke. You know, my wife, those who know Debbie, she's super compassionate and kind. She comes out there. She's cooking dinner. She sees this. She's just like, she rolls her eyes and goes back to the kitchen to cook some dinner. Now, she tells me she's telling him to get up, but I, I, I feel like she rolled her eyes. You know, the first ten times this happened, Okay, you, it's like funny, right? It's like, ah, ha, ha, he's acting this. After 50 times, you're like, son, get your butt up, man. 
And this is what I said to him. I said, stop acting like a victim. And you guys know in that moment the Lord spoke to me. He says, son, that's what you do. That is what you do. You're acting like a victim. So when the Lord spoke that to me, it gave me an avenue to start discovering, to dig deep into my mindset, to see all the nuances of that victim mentality that's been in my heart and my life for decades and decades. So I started on this journey. I want to share this the, the discoveries I have with you. But before we start, I want to have a little disclaimer. You know how, like, your mind can't unsee certain things? Like, uh, my wife and I purchased a, uh, a minivan a few months ago. And when we were shopping for a minivan, all we could see on the street was minivan, right? That's like, it's like, oh, there's a minivan, there's a minivan, there's a minivan. I've never seen so many minivans in my own life. No, it's, it's always been there. But your eyes are just attuned to it, right? It's the same thing with the victim and the victor's mentality. When your eyes get attuned, or your mind get attuned to the victor and victim's mentality, you're going to start seeing it everywhere. But I want to encourage you with the words of Jesus Christ himself, okay? You hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eyes, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Because it's so much easier to see the victim's mentality in those around you and those you love. So much harder to see it in yourself. So I want to ask you just now, don't elbow the person next to you. Don't give them the side glance. I know even now you're thinking, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this message. Stop it. No. Focus on yourself. There's plenty of victim mentality in all of us to share. Just focus on yourself for now. Can we all do that? Can you guys promise me to do that right now? Okay. So I'm going to take you through the four steps to a victim's mentality. The first one is, I am not in control. So what happens when you're hurt, when something happened, an accident happens, something you don't have control happens that hurts you, you feel bad, you feel traumatized, you feel victimized, you can quickly get fixated on what you don't have control of instead of what you do have control of, okay? The truth is there's so many things in the world that you don't have control of, okay? You don't have control over the weather, you don't have control over the traffic. You don't have control over other people's reactions. You don't have control over how the bears play. You don't have control over so many things. And if you let that, your mind get fixated on that, it just becomes snowballed into this crazy thing. Okay, I don't have control. And this feeling of not having control then becomes a reality. Then it becomes an identity. Okay, next you know you become a victim because you have no choice. I want to illustrate this with a little story I read from this book, uh, Victim, uh, Victim versus Victor. And the, the writer of this story, he, he was a, a police officer for the uh, city of Los Angeles. And he wrote about this one on, on the call, a domestic abuse call he had. Uh, on one call, the wife screamed at us because her husband has been beating her. The husband proclaimed his innocence. We start to arrest him, but she decided she didn't want to press charges. We separated her from her husband and asked uh, to take her somewhere safe, she insisted that she couldn't leave because she has nowhere to go. We gave her the usual literature on women's shelter, but she insisted she has no choice. Later then, we had to go to a, a different domestic call. About an hour later, we were called back to the same location. When we arrived, this time, however, the woman was dead. And the man sat next to her with a gun on the table in front of him. As we arrested him, he explained that he didn't have a choice when he shot her, she had burned his dinner for the last time. 
A domestic dispute turned to a murder investigation because no one had a choice. She couldn't leave despite the numerous options provided by the city. He had to kill her because she couldn't get his dinner right. He didn't have a choice. When we focus on the choice that we don't have, we cannot even see the choice that we do have. So we start with I am not in control. I don't have a choice. Which then, if you convince yourself of that, then it rolls into, flows into I, don't, I am not responsible, okay? And let's just be real here. There is a real seductive lure to saying I am not responsible. Sometimes it just feels good to say I don't need to own my own feelings. I don't need to own what I say. I don't need to own what I do. And therefore I can do whatever I want with no accountability. It's not my fault. Can we be honest about that? Sometimes it just feels good. It's a little guilty pleasure to say, hey, it's not my fault. But the problem is when you are not responsible for your negative feelings, your negative reactions, then someone is. Now you just start the blame game. You start pointing fingers. I'm going to talk about this more later, but think about this. Isn't the inherent characteristic of immaturity of a child is that they won't take responsibility? And then the third thing, from no control, no responsibility, to I'm all about me. Now, see, when you're not responsible, when others are to blame, it leads to self-pity, self-focus, becomes all about you, and then this leads to entitlement, which says, I deserve this. Now, we use this in our verbiage a lot, like, hey, I deserve this, you deserve this, but I want to remind us, okay, we need a context, okay? Let's just look at a cross right there. At the end of the day, what do we really deserve? What do we truly deserve? I mean, I'm not talking about fairness here. But whenever we say, I deserve this, I feel like we overlook the cross. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what atrocity has been done to us, what injustice has been done to us. If we believe in the cross, we know at the end of the day, we deserve separation from, from the, internal separation from the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the only one who deserves all the glory. And whenever we say, I deserve this, I think we overlook that. This then opens the door to jealousy Envy and bitterness. I want to share about my struggle. In, my, in the midst of my struggle with my kids, right, I'm blaming my kids. They're driving me nuts. They're driving me crazy. I'm losing sleep. My wife told me this. <laughs> she told me my, my mom and dad-in-law who lives in Virginia Beach has decided to take my brother-in-law's young kids with them for the whole summer. Two months that they're going to take them so that my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law gets to be kids-free for two months. They can go travel and get a break and so forth and so forth. And I heard this when my wife told me this. Instead of being happy for my father-in-law and mother-in-law that they get to spend time with their grandkids or be happy for my, my brother-in-law that they get a little break, what do you think happened to my heart? Oh, my goodness. Two months, I'll take two hours. That's what I thought. <laughs> Anger, bitterness, jealousy. But then, hey, check it out. Entitlement rose up in me. I deserve this. I deserve my parents to come and take care of my kids. I deserve a two-month rest. I deserve all this. And then my wonderful wife, in her, in her wisdom, said this to me. She said, hey, it's our choice that we choose to live in northwest Indiana. It's your choice. It's our choice. She didn't say it's your choice, but even though it was really my choice, <laughs> she was kind enough to say it's our choice. Because if we live in Virginia, 
my, my parents will absolutely take our kids. It is our choice that we decide to live in northwest Indiana. This is what she said to me. She said, I'd much rather live in Indiana without my parents than live in Virginia with my parents. Because God has called us to this church family and we love our church family. See, that's the difference between a victim and a victor, right? A victim says, oh, I deserve this. My parents, why have they done this to me? Woes me. It's not fair. Well, the victor says, no, we chose because God's called us to be in this place, so stop complaining. You see the difference? I'm all about me. And then the last step, I am alone. From no control, not responsible, all about me, to the, the mentality leads to a sense that everything in the world is against me. Hopelessness and depression sets in. And if you are a Christian, you might not be literally saying those words, but your attitude, your mentality becomes indictment of God's character. Okay, I'll give you an example. You know, I showed a picture earlier of my son. So just imagine my son, Nehemiah, six years old. You see him walking around the church. He's just sulking. He's like, no one cares about me. No one loves me. I'm all alone. I'm just so tired and just whatever. I mean, if you know me, if you love me, you would probably grab me and be like, hey, what's wrong with your son? Like, what's going on there? Right? Wouldn't you do that? And if I knew my son was doing that, I would grab him and be like, dude, son, what are you doing? What's going on here? See, even though my, my son is not cursing me, his attitude, his mentality is indictment on his father's kindness and his father's character. And I want to remind you, your father loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross. Maybe our mentality should reflect that. Maybe our mindset should reflect that. And I want to remind you, this is the devil's end game. That's his end game. He introduced these little seeds of the victim's mentality in you because he wants to take you to the point in which you indict God's character and say, God is against me. Because he knows he can't keep you from heaven, but on earth, if he can keep you emotionally separated from your father, he has won. That is his end game. God has abandoned you. See, this mentality sneaks into everything we do. Now, you might not have gone from one, two, three, four, but I pretty much guarantee there's bits and pieces of this mentality that's peppered in your life, okay? Peppered in here and there and there and there. And I want to, I want to show you what that looks like. Remember when I said my kids are driving me crazy? Remember me saying that? I want to analyze that real quick. What am I really saying? What am I really saying by saying my kids are driving crazy? Think about it. What I'm really saying is this. On any given day, in any given moment, do you know who determines the sanity of your pastor? Not me. Not this guy. Not the 40-year-old guy. A two-year-old determines at any moment whether your pastor is crazy or not. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Makes you feel real good, right? Makes you feel like I'm so glad there's a senior pastor here. <laughs> right? Isn't that what I'm basically saying? How about this statement? My kid just makes me so mad. Now, I'll be honest. Often I say those after an <clears throat> ungodly outburst of anger. Okay, so basically what I'm saying is what I just display, the things I said that's ungodly, that's not my fault. That's not my fault. It's my kid's fault. They made me so mad. They made me so mad. So think about this. 
My kids are not even old enough to drive a car or anything closer. I would be crazy to give my kids the keys to my car and say, hey, son, go out. Go for it. I can't even touch the pedals. But I'm giving him the keys to my emotions. So he is brainwashing me. He, he's Jedi mind trick me to make me angry. So it's not my fault that I'm angry. They made me angry. That's basically what I'm saying. What about this one? I just can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. The implication is I'm all alone. No one else is doing this. It's all on my shoulder, and I just can't do it anymore. I surrender. Even though God's given me an awesome, wise, kind, helpful wife, a great church family, great pastors, he's blessed me beyond belief, he's given me great parents. However, in this moment, because of how I feel, I'm going to indict God's character and say I'm all alone because of those emotions I feel right now. That's basically what I'm saying. I can't do this anymore. You see, words have power. Words have power. And you might have said those similar things, maybe not at your kids, but other things. And you might have said those things in the privacy of your own home. But I want to remind you, someone heard you. You know who heard you? You heard you. You heard you. And if you preach to yourself enough times, if you say those things enough times, you are going to convince yourself you have no choice, you have no control, you have no responsibility, and, and it's not all about you, and then you are all alone. This is the power of that toxic victim mentality that tries to creep into everywhere, everything we do. So I want to ask you, do you have the pepper, the victim's mentality peppered in your life? So what do you do? I'm going to give you some very practical things to fight this. I give, I'm going to give you four antidotes. I use four antidotes because this mentality truly is poisonous. It's toxic. Okay? Four principles of the victorious mindset. Mindset. Apply as needed. Okay? The first one is this. I always have a choice. James 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Allow perseverance to finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In the midst of harsh circumstances, devastating events in life, when we feel helpless, we're persecuted and attacked for your faith, James' admonition to the church is this. He's saying, you have a choice. He's not saying suck it up and just be joyful. What he's saying is exercise your faith. Through the lens of your faith, you are able to see that this hardship is used by God to fulfill his purpose. Now, if you don't have the lens of faith, you cannot see that. He's saying exercise your faith. You have a choice to exercise your faith. Let your faith mold your thoughts and let your thoughts shape your feelings, not the other way around. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole verse. But basically he's saying rejoice in the Lord always. Be gentle. Be anxious about nothing. But by prayers and petition offer your request to God. And the peace of God which, which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind Christ Jesus. And he talks about think about good things. Paul is saying in the midst of crisis, choose joy. Choose to be gentle. Husbands, men. In the middle of crisis, choose to be gentle, not to lose it. Gentle. Choose to be thankful. Choose to think the best of others. And I want to remind you when Paul's talking about this, guess where he's at? He's in chains. He's in jail. And he's saying, rejoice. Now, I want to for a moment speak to those who you feel like in these moments, crisis moments, you truly don't have a choice. Um, I... I want to share experience in my life in which I feel like I was in the middle of an emotional tornado. Okay, you guys ever been there? 
Your thoughts are out of control. Your emotions are out of control. Everything's out of control. And when someone says, hey, just control this, it's just like, that's, that's crazy. I can't control anything. Um, I've been there. This is what I did. I found a room, which no one would interrupt me for days and days and days. And that time it was, I just went to the youth room. I buried my face in the carpet, the old carpet. I buried my face in the carpet. And I cried out to God. I said, God, I don't feel like I can control my thoughts. I can't, I can't control my emotions. I don't know what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. I don't know what to do. And the Lord told me, he said, what do you have control over? What do you actually have control over? And I said, Lord, the only thing I have control over is the utterance of my lips. What I could utter from my lips. He says, just give me that. Just give me that. So I start uttering, Lord, I thank you. I praise you. I rejoice in you. All things work for the good of those who love you and call according to your purpose. I start uttering rejoicing words, his words, praising him. Now, mind you, I didn't feel any of that. Does that make sense? It wasn't like I felt it. But I just offer the utterance of my voice to God. And as I commit the little bit of control I had to Jesus, you know how he says if you faithful little, he'll give you more? I felt a little clarity in my mind. So I keep uttering, I keep battling. I felt my mind get a little more clear. I'm like, oh, I can think more clearly. Oh, God has blessed me so much in the past. He's been faithful in the past. My mind can be straightened. I can believe in him. So my mind got in control. And then I keep battling my mind, giving my thoughts to him, praising him. And then next thing you know, I start to feel a level of peace that comes to my heart. I feel a little bit more joy. And next thing you know, I have control of my emotions. Now, this took me days to battle out. But at the end of this, I felt like a new man. And guess what happened? Nothing in my circumstance has changed. But how many of you know the greatest battle is not out there? It's in here. See, in the middle of crisis, we focus not on what we don't have control of. You focus on the 0.1% you have control of. You surrender that to Jesus. And he will reward you for it. He will give you more and more. So you focus on your choice. You always have a choice. Does that make sense? The second step, if you acknowledge that you have a choice, then you acknowledge that you have responsibility. See, in, the, in pop culture today, responsibility is seen as a nuisance, right? I don't want to be responsible for that. Don't put that on me. But in the kingdom of God, responsibility, it's a blessing. It's a reward. Check this out in, in Luke chapter 19. Well done, the king said. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. How would you like that for a reward? Here's ten more cities of responsibility. That's how the kingdom of God works. But before we talk about ten cities, let's just talk about you. Okay. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Before we focus on cities, can we focus on, say, being responsible for your own thoughts? your own reactions, your own words, your own feelings, your own actions? How about we start there? What does it look like to make a commitment to own 100% of yourself? It starts with a very simple exercise. You guys ready? You guys ready for the challenge? Stop blaming others. The truth is when you start blaming others, you start looking at their faults and their flaws, there's a temporary relief. There's a temporary releasing of pressure. I get that. However, it aborts what God is trying to do in you. 
It aborts your growth process. You stop maturing and growing. My wife allowed me to give this example. I just thought it was so good. You know, when I was going through that issue of blaming everybody, blaming my kids, blah, 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 I can't sleep, it's their fault, blah, blah, blah. She was going through her own issues, okay? But you know who she blamed? Well, what she blamed? She said, if only I get enough sleep. That's what she blamed. Why am I just out of it today, emotional, up and down, not feeling good, I don't get out of it, well, it's because I didn't get enough sleep. Uh, why am I just short review today, or I couldn't do this, well, because I didn't get enough sleep. Why didn't I exercise today, because well, I didn't get enough sleep, okay. She used sleep as a scapegoat, okay. And one day she was praying, and the Lord said this to her. You know how the Lord speaks in sarcasm sometimes? <laughs> he did one of those, he said, mm-hmm, yep, I'm sure that's the reason why. The reason why you're on the emotional roller coaster is not because of emotional immaturity. It's not because you need to manage your time better and better margins. It's not because you got to get in my presence more and sense my presence in your heart. It's because you didn't get enough sleep. I'm sure that's the reason why. Go ahead and go with that. Just go with that if that makes you feel better. And that awakened something in her heart. She realized scapegoating the lack of sleep, okay, has hindered what God is trying to do her heart. You know what the Bible verse when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Remember all that? We tend to inject something at the end of that verse. Like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as long as I get four to six hours of uninterrupted beauty rest. Right? What do you inject the back of that verse? We all inject something. I let the Holy Spirit identify what that is. Because when my wife was able to release and release sleep, stop blaming sleep, all of a sudden she starts growing. This is not about signing blame. This is about truly becoming the man and woman God that God's called you to be. She starts to actually grow. Does that make sense? See, a lot of times we use blame to protect us. We don't realize blaming others ruins us. What do you blame? I blame my kids. My wife blame lack of sleep. Do you blame your past trauma, your past hurts, your spouse, your lack of education, your upbringing, your parents, whatever it is. Let the Holy Spirit bring up these things that has blocked your growth. I'm not saying those people are innocent or what they've done is legitimate. I'm, saying, I'm just saying stop letting those things hurt you by stop blaming them. You know, Pastor Marion says something to me. One of the most impactful things she said to me still resonates. She says, no one can make you be offended. You choose to be offended. And when I heard that from her, I was offended at her. <laughs> Which proves her point. So if you offended at me, it just proves your point. But the thought I had at that moment was this. If someone came and punched me in the face, don't do that because I would probably be offended. But if you came and punched me in the face, what she was saying is, it's my choice to be offended. In other words, he didn't offend me. If I get offended, that's still on me. Think about that for a second. That's crazy responsibility for your own reaction and emotions. Now, for some of you, that might sound like, well, that's not fair, and you're putting all the onus on you. But if you have the right ears to hear, you realize this is the most empowering, empowering message ever. It empowers you to not be offended. And later we're going to talk about Jesus, and that's exactly what he did. That's the victory he had on the cross. Even in the midst of injustice, he chose not to be offended. And that is what a winner looks like. This is one of the most empowering things you can do is to own your own offense and say, hey, I didn't have to be offended. I chose to be offended. 
running out of time here. I want to quickly go over number three. The third antidote is I focus on others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. You can show that verse. I'm not going to read it. The spiritually mature person recognizes that the self-focused life is a dead end. But true joy comes when you pour out your life into others. See, if you're wise, you realize that you want to increase your pool of happiness. By that I mean to say, if I'm just selfish and the only time I'm happy is when I succeed, my window of happiness is like this much. But if I attach my seed of happiness to your success and your success and your success and your success, all of a sudden I have greater opportunity to be happy. Does that make sense? There's men in this room that when they succeed, I'm more happy about their success than about my own success. And I'm not being altruistic or being mature or whatever. I'm being selfish. I want to be happy all the time. So I want to keep growing my flock of happiness. It's like if, you, if, if any given NFL season, all you cheer is for the Bears, then you have a very narrow window <laughs> of happiness. However, if you cheer for three or four other teams, now you have a much greater chance of having a victory at the end of the year. It's the same thing with life. Choose to be happy by attaching your happiness, invest in other people's lives, cheer for their success. And you know what? You might feel their pain also, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. That's why Christ says, go think about other people. It will make you happier. So instead of looking inwardly, look out. Number four, I am loved. Instead of saying, I am alone, I am loved. The spiritual mature person knows that God is for me regardless of all the circumstances. I'm going back to Romans uh, 8. The, can, you, can you bring up that passage? I'm not going to read it. Paul basically is saying we are more than conquerors. We are great winners. Now, I don't know about you. I've never really felt like a winner growing up. Some of you guys are winners in all different arenas. Uh, I wasn't. I never played any sports in, high sc- in middle school, elementary school, high school, whatever. The only sport I ever played was in college in a sport called ultimate frisbee. For those who don't know, ultimate frisbee is the is sport you play when you're not good at any other real sports. <laughs> like all the people who can't make the real teams play ultimate frisbee. And, um, and, and I wasn't even that good at it. Um, no, I was never the smartest, never the sharpest person in the room. My car is 15 years old. I don't have a lot of money. The only thing I have going for me is I have an awesome wife, so maybe have that. But I would like to go to Apostle Paul and say, Apostle Paul, how, how, how am I a winner? Just tell me. Define winner for me. Like we have all these definitions of winners in the world. Okay, and we've been hearing this whole entire life. But you define winner for me. How am I a winner? You ever want to ask Paul that? Like you call me a winner. How is that the case? But this is what I imagine Paul's reply would be. He would say, what about this? The creator of the universe is crazy about your success. In fact, he was spared no cost to bring that into fruition, even giving his most precious son. And by the way, he has access to all the resources of the world because he owns everything. And moreover, from God's perspective, the only perspective that counts, no one can ever say anything bad about you. No one can ever slander you, trash you, criticize you behind your back because Jesus himself got your back. And moreover, Jesus, you know, the king of the universe, the guy that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, loves you forever and nothing will ever change that. And basically that's what those verses just said. And I will say to Paul, "Ah, that's a pretty good definition of a winner. I'll take that. That is a winner. And that's who we are. In closing, I want to ask you, 
Who is the greatest winner of all time? If I ask you who is the greatest winner of all time, who comes to mind? Be real here. How many people say Michael Jordan? Mike Ditka, maybe? I don't know. Trying to appeal to the Bears fans, trying to make nice. Uh, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know. But I don't think we often think of Jesus as the greatest winner of all time. Because by his standard, by the world's standard, he died on the cross. Like, that's not what a winner does. But I want to share a perspective of Jesus through the perspective we just shared, those four criteria, and show you how he is the greatest winner the world has ever seen. Now, first of all, Jesus was victimized beyond belief. Betrayed by his loved one, Judas. Abandoned denied by his other loved ones. Falsely accused, check. Unfairly trial, check. Physically tortured, check. Emotionally abused, check. Injustly sentenced to death, check. Weight of the sins on his world, none of it was his fault, check. Total separation from his beloved father. If anyone can claim to be a victim, that would be Jesus, right? But look at what he did. He never surrendered his choice. In Matthew 26, when Peter hit, struck the, the ear of the guy trying to get him, he said, put your sword back in this place, for all, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See, Jesus did not blame Judas. He didn't blame the Pharisees, Pontius Pilate. He didn't blame the Romans. Because he knew at the end of the day, check this out, it was his choice. He chose to go on the cross. He wasn't forced into it. He wasn't guilt into it. He wasn't pressured to it. He did it because he chose to love us and love his father. I don't know anything else that makes him more the man than anything else. Like He is the man. Facing the cross, he's like, no, that's on me. I chose it. I chose it. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not victimized. I'm the man. I chose the cross. Look at number two. Jesus held on to his responsibility. John 19, when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he had loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, Jesus going on the cross, by definition, was taking on the weight of the world, right? The responsibility of our sins. In the midst of this huge responsibility he carried, he did not forget his other responsibility to his mother. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we get so focused on our big picture, we forget the, the smaller, seemingly small details. But Jesus showed us his commitment to responsibility by pausing in the middle of being on the cross and say, hey, Take care of my mother. She's my responsibility. He will not ever abdicate his responsibility. He owns every ounce of responsibility given to him. Now, this should bring us such peace, but guess what? Every single one of you is his responsibility. That should make you feel so safe in your heart that Jesus will not abandon even one ounce of his responsibility. He made sure in the middle of pain, agony, and hurt his mom is taken care of. He held on to his responsibility. Number three, even in pain, Jesus focused on others. You guys know the story. Even on the cross, he looked to the thief on his left or right. I don't remember. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And later on the cross, he cried out to his father. He says, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. 
Again, in the middle of pain and agony, our focus is on ourselves. But Jesus can't help but put his focus on those around him. And lastly, I want to talk about facing the greatest battle of the victim's mentality. Feeling like he's alone. In Matthew 27, 46, you guys are familiar with this. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how I know the siren's voice of abandonment is so powerful. Even Jesus faced it. This is the devil's trump card. He will turn you against God using this last effort to say you are alone. But check out what Jesus said at the very end. Luke 23, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he has said this, he breathed his last. The centurion who seen what happened praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. With this last breath, Jesus was basically saying, I'm not, I'm not committing my spirit into the Roman's hand, circumstance hand, wicked men's hand. I'm committing my spirit into my Father's hand. Because even though I don't feel any of this, my faith says I belong to you and I am not alone. I am loved. And you can steward me and resurrect me. Brothers and sisters, in the middle of this hardship, injustice, pain, betrayals. You know, I'm going to be the last person to say, hey, just suck it up and be joyful. I'm not going to ever say that to you. But what I'm trying to do is I want to figuratively take your chin, okay, and lift your chin up. Lift your gaze up to the cross. Jesus stood as the greatest winner of all time. And he's inviting you to join in the victorious mentality. Now we're going to sing one more song here, the song of response. Can we all stand? I want to ask you guys, you've seen the song. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. A couple questions. What responsibility do you need to take back into your life? What responsibility have you abdicated and the Lord says you need to take this back? Second question. What blame or what excuses do you need to let go that you have held on for too long as hinder you from truly growing do you need to let go? And finally, have you accepted the lie from the devil that your father has abandoned you? If you do, please repent because you have indicted God's character. Come back before the father and allow him to love you.